I think we have a quorum. I can get us started. Good evening or morning, as the case may be, uh, everybody. My name is Darren Lapomi, one of the um, organizers of this symposium. Um, I work at the UC San Diego Department of Nanoengineering and Chemical Engineering Program. Um, and I have a couple of my co-organizers um, as the moderators of this panel on haptic materials and haptics for VR and AR. And they are um, Ben T from the National University of Singapore and E Menguch from Facebook. And uh, what I think we should do first is uh, go around and give a short introduction to all the moderators and the, uh, and the panelists. So let's start with Ben. Hi, uh, well, welcome to this uh, symposium. And um, it's been really uh, fun organizing it together with Darren who did you know, significant amount of the heavy lifting, I must say, thank you, Darren. And, uh, and also thanks to the, uh, the panelists for joining this. So my, I'm Benjamin T from the National University of Singapore, and uh, briefly I work on sensors and soft materials, and uh, generally very interested in uh, haptics. And I think that uh, moving forward, the human machine interfaces will have to will probably change a lot. And I think that this really we are the emerging phase of uh, such technology has been taken some time, but I think that we have a lot of tools now that we can advance uh, haptics. So thank you. Great, thanks, Ben. Eat. Hi, thanks again, Darren. And let me first uh, echo Ben in thanking Darren for doing a immense amount of work. It's It always amazes me to see just like how much effort is needed to herd all the cats. And Darren did a great job of cat herding today. So thank you, Darren. Um, and so my, 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 my background is in mechanical engineering and got into material science a little bit as uh, on the side working as a postdoc in soft robotics, um, but now I'm uh, a uh, research science manager at Facebook where haptics is a big part of how we anticipate humans will interact with virtual and augmented worlds um, to make things more natural. So I'm very glad to see that there's, there's a lot of intellectual curiosity and, and energy here. So I look forward to seeing uh, a lot more uh, in, this, in this webinar. Great, thanks, Heath. How about uh, Charles next? Yeah, thanks so much for organizing and having me here. Uh, I'm Charles Stong. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Delaware in the Department of Material Science and Engineering and Biomedical Engineering. And briefly, our lab works on measuring and controlling mechanical forces in biology, ranging from cells all the way up to the human sense of touch. So more relevant to the panel here is we use tools from material science uh, to develop new ways to create tactile sensations or develop uh, new types of materials that can uh, reveal how uh, touch works. Great. Thanks, Charles. Ed? Sure. Um, I'm Ed Colgate. I'm um, a professor at Northwestern University and um, have been in this field of haptic interface for a very long time. Um, uh, the first chunk of my career was on essentially robotic devices, force feedback devices. Um, and then I did a few other things. And then for the past 10 to 15 years, I've been working on what we call surface haptics. So um, basically enabling people to, to you know, feel rich haptic sensations on uh, flat, usually rigid surfaces like touchscreens. Um, and I, I will say that in the last year or so, it's, it's really dawned on me that uh, we uh, we need to we need to move beyond that. We need to be thinking uh, well well beyond that, and and that uh, materials and the sorts of challenges that many of my you know co panelists here are are thinking about and at the forefront of developing is really the future of the field. So um, I'm excited to be a part of this. Thank you for inviting me, and I look forward to the discussions. Great, thanks, Ed. Fabrizio. Yep. Hi everyone, I'm Fabrizio Sergi. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Delaware in the biomedical engineering and mechanical engineering department. Um, my work is uh, mostly focused on human-robot interaction and uh, specifically on uh, human-robot interaction in the context of neurorehabilitation. Uh, we've been uh, developing robotic devices that can support motor function, like replacing the function of a human therapist. And uh, we've also been uh, trying to use robotics to understand principles of motor control uh, 
using a combination of robotics with imaging techniques. Uh, so I see myself as more of a system integrator and I've been uh, interested in seeing what potential new materials can afford to our field and try to bridge the link between materials and application of these material in human-robot interaction. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm excited to the discussion. Thanks Fabrizio. Laura? Hi everyone. Uh, thank you to the organizer for having me here. It's a really exciting panel and I really look forward to the conversation today. Um, my name is Laura Kayser. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Delaware. I'm in the departments of material science and engineering as well as chemistry and biochemistry. My training uh, is organic chemistry. I'm a synthetic polymer chemist. Uh, and so I'm interested in designing and synthesizing new materials to interface with the human body. Uh, my group works in the area of bioelectronics. We make uh, stretchable and soft electronics that can uh, be interfaced with the human body, either directly uh, or indirectly for implantables and wearables. And we're a lot, uh, we're gearing a little bit towards uh, actuators also and stimuli responsive materials to study and uh, trigger tactile sensations. Okay, thanks, Laura. Uh, the first question I would like to uh, like to ask is, how can we think about combining actuation and sensing? Because we are often working in a uh, several of our talks were in a medical context um, where we have a, a haptic uh, robot or haptic appliance where sensing has to be integrated into the actuation uh, component. But even in surface haptics, you need to be able to sense the finger, but also provide feedback in real time. And I'm wondering um, how you think about combining these functionalities. And you can take this from a materials integration standpoint uh, or look at it from the standpoint of, of, uh, of combining stimulus and response with or without the use of integrated circuits. Um, and how, how do you think about that? Um, and we can, uh, we can start with, uh, with, well, I, I don't want to ambush you. So um, if anyone has a, 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 something they'd like to say, by all means, uh, you can speak up. And if we need to um, uh, do this in a more uh, formalized way, I can certainly uh, call on our, our, our panelists. Uh, all right, I'll start because I'm, I'm the old guy here, so I'll, I'll start to make it easier. <laughs> Thanks. I'll, I'll try to say some provocative things that the rest of you can jump on. Um, uh, so it's a really, really good question, Darren. Um, it, those, those who've worked in haptics think a lot about um, the fact that haptics, perhaps uniquely uh, among the senses, is bilateral. Um, so to perceive things through touch, we must touch them. So we must take an action and, and then and then you know feel uh, through our senses a, a response. And very often that's an energetic interaction. There's very non-negligible amounts of energy flowing between you and the world that you're you're touching. Not always, but but very often. Um, and and so given that it's bilateral, what's happening is happening in this kind of closed loop. Um, and so the systems, that, the, the systems that we end up building are these closed-up systems. And to make them work properly, you end up with all the same sort of problems that anyone ends up with when they're designing a closed-loop system. For instance, stability, uh, you know, performance depending upon um, sample rate, um, uh, latencies, things of this nature. So uh, it, it's usually quite necessary in haptics to think about um, sensing and actuation uh, together from the get-go. Um, I know a lot of people tend to like the notion as they think these days, especially about bringing in soft robotics. Well, maybe the sensor and actuator can really be, you know, analogs that can, they can just be the same thing run in different directions. And usually that's not how things end up, all right? Usually actuators are really tailored to their, um, to their power regime. The fact they have to do mechanical work typically, whereas sensors are, are you know, meant ideally, right, to, to, um, to sort of, be energetically as neutral as possible and to affect the behavior of the system as little as possible. So usually we end up with um, different, 
either different different technologies or different scale or application of technologies for sensing and actuation. Um, whether that will continue to be the case as we move into you know, the future we're powered by new materials and soft robotics ideas, I don't know, but I, I put my money on it. It would probably continue to be the case for pretty fundamental reasons having to do with just the scale of the signals and the power. Yeah, I, I think I, I, I like the way that uh, Addis framed this and it's, um, it's definitely, yeah, definitely the one sense that requires this coordinated uh, investigation of uh, action and perception, right? Uh, definitely from a, an analysis standpoint, we can only study haptics and sense of touch uh, in this framework. Um, going more into uh, what it means to uh, include this capability into, uh, I mean, uh, you made the example of medical systems. And uh, in this case, we may be talking about um, restoring a sense of touch through prosthetics, right? So, well, in that case, then uh, the, uh, I, I will first start by saying that it's true that people look at these two problems separately, right? In most cases. And I wonder whether, uh, you know, maybe for some application that is necessary, indeed, uh, the way to restore the link between perception and action in a prosthesis uh, on the actuation side requires very different, uh, poses very different constraints uh, as compared to what you would need to then uh, restore the sensation of touch back, right? And that point, uh, you have to worry about uh, problems like uh, uh, stimulation at the at at neural or peripheral level, and, and that may be a, a very different a very different problem, right? So, um, I agree that the, probably integration between sensing and actuation is very important for you know haptic systems in general. But I also think that in that case, it will depend a lot about the application uh, that that we are we are talking about. So. Uh, Yeah, and to kind of take a different perspective from what's been raised, um, it's kind of some of the ways I think coming from a materials perspective and you know, not to say this is all materials perspective, but uh, one of the things I think about is, um, you know, how do, how you have this problem of like, someone's gonna to touch an object and you may not necessarily know how they're gonna to touch the object. And that's gonna change how something feels both in terms of literally what are the forces being generated because someone's pressing harder or sliding faster, but also what are they expecting, right? Like you're pressing hard yourself, um, you're expecting a certain kind of feedback as you press harder and as you press lighter. Um, so kind of one of the ways I think to address this is, so how can you program materials to then respond uh, instantaneously, right? So in this case, the sensor is kind of embedded into the material and the way the material responds. Um, so one of the, advantages of this method is that it's instantaneous, um, is that there's no delay between the sensor and the actuation. Um, you know, I don't think this is as uh, rational necessarily to design because it's not like we can say we want to generate this force at this exact time. We kind of have to program, well, if someone presses in this manner or presses in another manner, here's the forces we can expect the material to uh, generate. Um, so. I, I think that's you know different system, um, but it could be one way to kind of bridge this actuation uh, sensor gap. Great, thank you all. Um, I should mention that if any of my other uh, any co-moderators um, have any any questions to uh, to jump in with, by all means, uh, by all means do so. Um, ben or Eat, um, uh, by all means, this is your. Uh, your uh, panel too. Sure, thanks. Sure. Thank you, Darren. Ben, go ahead. Oh, uh, okay. So I was, I mean, thanks. I think those were really uh, very interesting uh, thoughts around haptics and some of the limitations. And you, I guess there was a mention about latencies uh, and for humans, I mean, we, we typically operate, you know, in, I would say between about 10 to 50 milliseconds is the response time. So do you, uh, to the panelists, are there any challenges right now trying to achieve that kind of latencies required to actuate um, at the resolution needed um, for fine touch discrimination? Uh, and what, what technologies are probably the most promising uh, currently? So that, oh, maybe I'll start by answering that one. Uh, 
it's it's really a challenge because you can have things that move really fast but require a lot of power and then you have things that don't require a lot of power but are much smaller and bulkier in some cases and so there is kind of a disconnect in material science and materials chemistry maybe that can be addressing this um, the pneumatic system and the inspiration from soft robotics is great, but for fine touch, it's very, very difficult to miniaturize those systems. And I think we are making good progress in terms of like uh, kinesthetic, um, but for fine touch, it remains really a challenge. Even miniaturizing things for fine touch is really, really hard, even with electroactive actuators um, and uh, other like electrostatic or electroadhesive systems, uh, and they require a lot of power. It, but they're amazing. But there are like trade-offs and uh, all of those, and so they think there's still a lot of work to be to be done in this area. Yeah, and I, I should mention I think Tanya has joined us too, so and I know she's an expert in all this too. So, um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and, and chime in. You mentioned the 15 uh, milliseconds ban, and and so it's interesting. And in, in back back in the day when a lot of us were working on this force feedback haptics, the rule of thumb was always one millisecond. Um, and and quite quite frankly, through the years, it's 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 sort of the numbers only dropped. <laughs> Uh, and the reason for that is, um, again, this closed loop nature of things. Um, if you're, if you, if you, if you, and this is really kind of kinesthetics uh, to, 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 to Lara's point, but if you run into something that's hard, um, then the, the forces uh, can, can change very, very rapidly, right? And, and so to simulate that, and, and, and by the way, I think this is something really important to understand is that like I'm very, very excited about all the incredible things that are happening with kind of bringing soft robotics and soft materials ideas into haptics. But, you know, think about what we're often trying to do, say in virtual reality, um, we're trying to emulate interaction with the world, which is mainly full of pretty rigid things. Um, and, and so when you interact with rigid things, um, the timescales can become very, very compressed. Uh, so, so, so very often the challenge is to, is to achieve much, much lower latencies than say 15 milliseconds. Um, now this is less true when we get into the tactile range uh, um, uh, than in the, the kinesthetic um, because it's it's not closed loop to the same extent. You don't have the same stability issues, um, but you know you still find. Um, I know a little bit in sort of the commercial world when people are trying to build really crisp feeling um, fiber tactile actuators, or in the work that I've done in surface haptics. Um, you're still trying to push that latency down, typically below 10 milliseconds in order for things to really feel feel right and feel crisp. Um, so, kind of rule of thumb in my mind, which is very context dependent, but it, but sort of in tactile range below 10 milliseconds and a kinesthetic range below one millisecond. Great, thank you. Yeah. I I, I like the, the discussion on, on latency and because as, as engineers, we always try to improve our systems and to make them more robust and faster. And uh, I also, you know, I wear kind of two hats. The other hat is of, uh, you know, using robots to study neuroscience. And I've been really amazed when I study how instead um, it's not the acuity of sensors, nor their refresh rate, nor the speed of a closed loop uh, cycle that we really need to, you know, uh, uh, where, where humans, for example, excel, um, the, 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 propagate, the, the, the time between a, uh, we do a lot of paradigms where we stretch muscles and the, 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 the spinal, the fastest spinal loop uh, is uh, on the order of 20 milliseconds for from muscle stretch to uh, uh, what's called a short latency response. And so that's 20 milliseconds and it's just going through the spine. And uh, if you look at, si at, at loops that instead cross the motor cortex, then it will take uh, more than 50 uh, milliseconds and a voluntary contraction. If you do the hundred meters and uh, you have a hundred millisecond delay time, which is assumed from the acoustic stimulus to the response time, right? So humans do not really excel in uh, having incredibly, uh, in the equity of their sensor, not of the speed of response, 
Um, yet, when we develop engineer system, we really need to achieve a sampling rate that are much faster because otherwise our systems become unstable. I've always been fascinated by this observation and wondering if uh, whether our biological systems uh, may have, uh, you know, evolved in a way that there is a lot of mechanical intelligence in the way they are uh, built and in uh, the, the, the properties of the muscles and of the fingertips that are in contact with the environment and, and whether that may be instead a, a different pathway that will allow, you know, improved performance of, in this case, soft robots or human interacting robots. So just, just to chime in on the, on the issue of, of, you know, refresh rate of sensors, which I agree should be improved, but, um, you know, maybe that's not the only, the only path. Yeah, and just to kind of uh, go off on that point, I think something about the only path, um, something Ben mentioned is this idea of recreating fine touch. Um, so there's different areas of haptics, um, different kind of goals of recreating either bulk motion or fine texture. So how can you tell two objects apart just by stroking them or touching them? In this case, I think that, um, you know, like currently most actuators are based off of the physical means, right? Like they'll, they'll make a bump or they'll make a ridge or they'll make a groove. Um, and here I think is where there's a lot of opportunity for material scientists um, to think of new systems and new ways of changing the surface chemistry, um, using different materials phenomena. Um, and these, these actuations can be fast because you don't have to have as large of a motion. Um, you know, how can you rearrange the outer layer, um, the surface layer to present, you know, something hydrophilic, hydrophobic, um, I mean, those are just examples, um, to really enrich in the experience. So can you layer this on top of this kind of like physical way of recreating features, um, recreating roughness, and then change the surface chemistry to add another layer of this fine touch aspect. Um, so I think there's some lower hanging fruits in terms of material systems which can work, um, but there's definitely interesting challenges as well. Um, you know, finding these lower limits if we set our kind of goal in mind, our engineering parameters in mind. Um, you know, what are the materials that can respond that fast and what is the range of sensations that they're, they can create that's additional to just bumps and physical textures. So it's true that most um, materials that we will come across in our day-to-day -day lives will be high modulus, they'll react quickly, but our interactions with most surfaces are actually mediated by a thin layer of organic species, whether they are physisorbed from the atmosphere or even if it is an organic solid. The problem is from a technological standpoint is that there aren't very many molecular actuators, um, certainly not ones that are, that are easy to address without producing fairly um, obviously confounding variables like like heat and uh, redox chemistry and this uh, this kind of thing. So that's a big challenge with uh, with molecular um, molecular interfaces. I did want to take a, a quick pause to uh, to allow Tanya Morimoto, who is my uh, my colleague at UCSD. So we haven't reached the UDEL contingent yet, but there are. <laughs> <laughs> two of us here. So, uh, Tanya, can you take a, a minute to um, introduce yourself to the uh, moderators and the panel and the attendees? Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Darren. Um, I'm happy to be here. Um, and thanks, Ed, for telling me to join in. Um, yeah. So I'm an assistant professor at UC San Diego, um, as Darren mentioned, in mechanical and aerospace engineering um, and the Department of Surgery as well. And so my research is mostly focused in the sort of soft, flexible robots for uh, surgical applications. Um, I typically, uh, the research we work on is mostly with the snake-like uh, sort of continuum robots um, that can conform to these really highly curved paths and navigate in these constrained environments. And so I'm interested um, in designing you know, new versions of these robots, as well as sensing mechanisms um, to better understand sort of how are these robots interacting and behaving with the environment um, and investigating how can we also create uh, user interfaces that are going to be a bit more intuitive for controlling these types of robots um, in this kind of um, constrained um, environment inside the human body. Great. Thank you, Tanya. Um, we, I also want to make a, an announcement about the, uh, the way to um, ask questions to the panel. You can use the chat box uh, either in Zoom, so um, you can 
you can send your, actually, I'm not sure if the attendees have access to the panelists, but all the attendees do have access to the panelists using the web interface. So not the Zoom interface, but if you go onto the, um, uh, the MRS uh, Pathable site, um, where you logged on, you can go to meeting details and uh, navigate over to the chat function. And a couple of us have just kind of entered some uh, some some uh, greetings there, so you can enter your questions there, and we'll uh, we'll read them out as the moderators. So. I heard the word energy a lot and energy requirements, energy dissipation. Um, how, uh, how do you think about energy um, in, a, in a wearable haptic device, in a surface haptic device, in a, in a haptic robot? Um, how, how, does, how do you envision that these devices will be powered? Um, what are some of our goals or performance metrics? How do, you, how do we think about that? Okay, well, well, while you have a second to think, um, uh, uh, Damon from MRS um, says that participants can send questions on both the Zoom platform and Pathable. So you have a couple options. Well, I think about energy a ton. Um, <laughs> so um, to, to me, the, um, you know, when we're using our, our hands in, in the world, well, the haptics is, is sort of, again, I mentioned earlier, kind of bilateral. So sometimes the world touches you and is putting energy into you, a lot of the time you're touching the world and your muscles are the source of energy for everything you feel. Um, so it's kind of a shame to build haptic interfaces that require a ton of energy, <laughs> all right? Um, uh, and yet we always seem to end up doing that. And I think a big part of the reason for that um, is that it, takes a lot of overhead to get energy from where you're storing it, which these days is usually a lithium ion battery, to where you need it and to convert it to the form that you need it, which maybe is going to be, you know, again, mechanical, certain, you know, certain amplitude of motion, certain bandwidth of motion, um, and a certain sort of link scale over which you're applying that. Um, and so to convert it from that one form to another form and to do that in an elegant way that doesn't store a lot of other energy along the way um, is a really big challenge. Um, you know, think about the ways that we typically do this sort of thing, you know, maybe pneumatics, for instance, it's like you get the battery, <laughs> then you got a pump, <laughs> then you got a, a capacitance, you know, that you're storing energy in the air, and then you've got a transmission line, and then something mechanical happens, and um, it's incredibly inefficient, and you know, things end up being bulky and inelegant, etc. So I, I feel like one of the really rich opportunities in in the space that again you you folks are in is to is to bring this the storage and the you know, the ultimate application of the energy much, much closer together. Um, I don't pretend to have an idea of how that can be done. I mean, I, I don't know that it's necessarily a matter of, um, you know, just uh, the newest dielectric elastomer or something like that. Maybe it is, um, uh, but um, I, I don't know that it has to be completely direct. Um, one of the things I, I like to think about is, you know, we're mostly looking at these LCD displays that have sort of a really have a, a global energy source and a backlight, and then it's sort of locally modulated. And so ideas like that, I think, are, are really interesting. But in any event, this, this, this challenge of storing kind of only the energy you need and really efficiently getting it in the form you need, where you need it, that's to me, that's a massive challenge for the field. So I'm hoping other people can explain how they would solve that problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, before we wait for that type of contribution, I'm going to provide mine, which is not going to be that. That I actually was going to respond to the unfortunately to the to the to the question saying that I you know I, I completely agree that is really one of the most challenging you know aspects of you know integrating systems for human application 
if you think about how much you know energy is required to support human movements right in human scale motion um, you know those systems tend to be uh, highly energetically inefficient and uh, I, I do think uh, and 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 specifically I have you know not done a lot of work directly into un autonomous systems and one of the reasons is uh, not because I didn't want, but it's because uh, it would uh, imply so much added overhead to the user. And uh, in our applications of rehabilitation, then we would end up preferring a, um, a system that is not energetic, energetically autonomous for that reason. Um, what I was going to add is uh, some uh, an aspect that um, we try to go around the, the lack of efficient energy sources. And, and for example, in exoskeletons, uh, there are a lot of um, design methods uh, that allow uh, to support for some of the components of movement that are required. For, for example, gravity balancing. Uh, with springs and compliant elements uh, that offload at least a portion of gravity from the user. For example, uh, uh, an arm exoskeleton that can achieve gravity compensation um, or a, a percent of compensation of the gravity of the arm. It can have already an incredible amount of uh, you know, benefit for a user that can now, you know, there are a lot of neurological reasons why that may be useful. Uh, there are also examples of exoskeletons for children that are completely passive and just with springs, just the fact that they can uh, just keep their hands in, an, in a position where they can interact with the world uh, does, does a ton. And I think that just shows how much a powered system instead could do in so many applications and how much the field is really suffering from the, the, the lack of, uh, you know, reliable and uh, sufficiently dense, energetically dense sources. Great, uh, Alec, uh, sorry, go ahead. Darren, if, if you don't mind, I was gonna direct the question to, to Laura because uh, she does look at kind of a almost autonomous and like combining lots of things and electroactive, which uh, Ed mentioned. So I wanted to hear her thoughts on future of electroactive polymers solving this problem. Yeah. Uh. I was going to chime in from like a chemistry perspective. So like as chemists, we think a lot about energy. Like you need energy to create bonds. You need energy to break chemical bonds. And chemists have perfected the way of using energy efficiently. And so the early methods, everybody was using heat. And so like, that's a very simple way. Unfortunately, it's not the most applicable to like human interfaces. You probably don't want to burn anybody with your haptic device. But there are ways around it. There are ways of breaking bond very efficiently using catalytic systems, like lowering the activation energy to like create bonds. You can also use light, uh, which will also like, there's a lot of really interesting like light activated uh, stimuli responsive materials now. Uh, redox systems are really cool because they use very little energy, but now they're limited a little bit in terms of speed because you have to transport ions through like large um, bulk materials, so it's a little bit speed limited. Uh, conductive materials can address a little bit this like speed issue, and so that's why some of the hydrogel systems have been really popular. Um, but I think there is still an adoption barrier, I feel. Like there's maybe a, a little bit of a lack of communication uh, between like chemists making really cool molecules and uh, people putting them into devices. Uh, it's not it's not an off-the-shelf material quite yet. It's not our favorite PDMS bottle that we can just use and integrate in our material. But so I think the field would probably benefit from like a close collaboration with scientists working on, on stimuli responsive materials that have like perfected uh, the control of bonds and, and chemical structures. But I don't know if I have like a solution yet. I'm working on it, but... Uh, I haven't found the perfect material yet either. And and Laura, if if I can, I think that's very interesting. And and yes, there, there is a lot of potential. And and as a, as an end user again, like someone that tries to integrate the solution into systems, right? Uh, one of the challenges um, sometimes has been uh, the difficulty in controlling these systems. And as we were talking before, with add. Uh, 
already, you know, standard position control poses some concerns, but when you try to implement interaction control of, you know, a wearable device with the, with the user, you know, as we've, we've heard, there are requirements of controllability that are pretty stringent, right? And uh, maybe that's why we've also, but are there chances? Are there options that may also do well under the standpoint of controllability? Yeah, I, I think there are options. And I mean, everything we, we use are electronic devices, right? It's like televisions, is electricity controlled. And I think that's probably the avenue that we want to take as well as like electroactive actuators are definitely one, one way to go. And there are some really good ones out there. Um, they have some challenges in terms of energy, but there is we can think about ways of designing materials specifically for usability. Um, and that's definitely something my group is thinking about. And I know you know about this project too, but uh, it's like, we're, we're trying to make like redox active materials, things that can be addressed with an electric current that would be uh, fast enough um, to like respond and like change their mechanical properties under an electric voltage. Um, and that would be something that needs to be scalable also because making thin films is not going to help anybody. Uh, we have to be able to like create a bulk system. So there is like a lot of steps before we can apply it in a, in a device. But I think like getting chemists to think about applicability is really good <laughs> because otherwise we'll just make our low vials forever and, and not put it in any device. Actually, I was going to say when you were talking about that, I think an, an additional constraint from some of the work that we do with the surgical robots is the form factor and the size constraint. Um, and that puts a lot of constraints in terms of, you know, where are you, how are you going to power any of these sort of components or these materials if you want sensors that you're going to add along the length of your like very, very thin um, backbone robot. I think a lot of these concerns um, become exacerbated in this form factor as well, where I think new materials could, could definitely help. So, Laura, could you say a little bit more? You, you, uh, you said redox reactions impacting mechanical properties, and and I, I wasn't sure. So, you know, one way we often think about things is well, we're just trying to generate a displacement or a force. But Charles pointed out earlier that well, no, you can think more broadly. You can think about changing material properties like like lubricity or uh, elasticity or things like that. And and so I'm curious. Where, where are you going with this? It sounds very, very exciting. So like the, so what we were looking into is like uh, looking at systems that can change like their degree of cross-linking. So we can make it like a polymer that goes from something that is linear to something that is highly cross-linked. And so we can do so using like redox active metal sensors that can have like strong like coordination uh, and attachment and creating like really tight cross-linking points. Uh, but when you reduce them, those like cross-linking points will like uh, collapse and dissipate. And so that's a concept that people have used in terms of like uh, chemically triggering those reactions. So you can uh, use like acid, acid-based reaction to do this, but you can also do it in a redox fashion. And so that's what we're looking at now uh, is like trying to address those electrically. Mm -hmm. Sounds very cool. I wonder if I can jump in with a question from an attendee. So Alex asks, where do you feel that haptic illusions or passive systems fit into the problem of energy? And I wonder if I can tack on um, an addendum to that question um, related to haptic illusions. So we think a lot about in terms of creating realistic sensations so things that really do a good job recapitulating the feeling of an object that you find in nature or in the body or on a screen. Um, but another way uh, to think about it is clarity of intent or clarity of communication. So maybe it doesn't feel like the object, but you you know what it is. Um, and I wonder how uh, how uh, how you think about that. Yeah, I'd like to jump in on. Um, so I really really like that question by I guess Alex Mazursky because um, I think at least in terms of fine touch. Um, I think that's one of the really important ways to think about this 
kind of problem of energy and this problem of, I mean, it's a scarcity issue. When you, when you touch an object, you only touch it in one spot. It's not like you can have multiple sensations being generated, multiple material systems. You have one interface. So you both have to have this energy density and this density of sensations in a single um, intentional event. Um, so I think the idea of having these haptic illusions or passive systems is really important because can you, you know, can you put something right on the edge and then a minimal amount of energy or minimal amount of sensation can force something to feel quite different. Um, so maybe I can't change the surface exactly, um, but maybe I'm wearing a glove and the glove has some micro patterning and that micro patterning I can switch just enough so that where I'm, when I touch that surface it actually feels very different just because it was right on that edge of feeling like something else. Um, so I think our ability to rationally design this depends on our ability to understand haptic illusions um, and our ability to understand how touch works on a fundamental level. Um, where are the opportunities where we can maximize changes uh, in sensation with the minimal amount of energy input and the minimal amount of uh, just material required? Um, how can we start to have these low power systems yet still put a richness um, in there and an intentional richness, right? So. Um, so in, in this idea of communicating intent as well, um, if you want to create a very large difference, you know, it's not just creating a really giant bump and a really small bump. Um, are there different uh, gradations we can add on top of that, like a large fuzzy bump and then a small smooth bump? Um, and then can we just keep going on from there? Um, so I, I think that that's a really important question, at least in for fine touch. I mean, I, I want to partially agree with you, Charles. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, I really, I really in, in, like your perspective, and and one of the things you said that I, I like a great deal is the importance of really un understanding at a fundamental level the, how that perceptual system works, which I think is actually way, way more important than illusions. Um, like a lot of people in the field of haptics, I've spent my share, my fair share of time trying to generate cool haptic illusions. Um, like bumps on a flat surface. Um, and I was excited about them until it began to dawn on me that, um, you know, there are books full of really cool visual illusions, <laughs> um, but we tend not to use them very much in a day-to-day -day fashion. And instead, what we tend to use is a very good understanding of how the visual system works, especially out at the periphery, right? We really understand color theory extremely well, and we make very good use of that in the way we build things like our monitors. But ultimately, the pictures that we tend to show on the monitors are pretty darn veridical. They 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 work on a retina the same way that you know ordinary um, sight does, and the same is true by and large in the way that we interface through sound. Um, it helps a great deal to understand, you know, how the cochlea works, you know, know what the critical bands are and things like this. That's really important. But at the end of the day, it's not really about illusions. It's not, when I think illusions, I think about, you know, kind of fooling the perceptual system, taking advantage of priors and, and you know, kind of making you come to the, the wrong um, conclusion and um, like feeling a bump where there is no bump. Um, so I, I think it's I think it's not about illusions. <laughs> um, I, there's a place for them, you know, but but I think it's more about really deeply understanding how the perceptual system works um, and taking advantage of that to better specify and better engineer solutions that interface to it. And I'll give you one example from our recent work. Um, we've we've got this electroadhesion technology we do a lot with in, in our lab which is a very, very high bandwidth way of modulating the friction between the skin and the surface. Um, and um, <clears throat> so that enables us to generate all sorts of um, sort of frictional, but think of it as lateral force waveforms under your finger as you're moving along a surface. And what we found is that many waveforms that you could, you could look at a picture of the waveform and two waveforms and, and they look very, very different will feel identical. Um, um, and so there's this notion of metamers, um, things that are uh, that are distinct stimuli but are perceived to be identical. It's true in you know in, in vision as well as uh, as it is in touch. And understanding that, understanding why there are metamers, like what what is actually going on in in the perceptual system that takes these two very distinct stimuli and makes them be perceived as the same. That's really valuable, I believe. I mean, once you understand that, you can begin to use that to, to build 
specifications for your hardware as well as your software, your mathematical rep representations? How do you want to represent texture information and things of that nature? So, so I, I'm I'm all about understanding how that how that that sensory system works, um, so that we can kind of meet it on its own terms rather than fool it. <laughs> So is the solution to be able to record touch the same way we record images and sounds? I sure wish, it, I wish it, I wish we had that solution. Um, um, it's amazing to me, yeah, we, you know, you just, it's sort of a given that, that a microphone and a speaker, you know, they, they kind of work in a similar way or that we've got, you know, cameras and, and displays and, um, that that we can record what we need to display, and that there's a almost a one-to-one -one mapping there, right? And that is not the case at all in touch. Um, and I think again, it gets back to touch being this bilateral thing. When you when you're touching the world, you're physically interacting with the world, and that means that the the system that that doesn't exist out there in the world today that we need in order to measure, um, you know, how the world feels, um, <clears throat> probably needs to be something that's um, very, very much like your your hands, um, so that it interacts in a physically similar way. Um, perhaps another materials challenge. I don't know, but but there are you know there are robotic fingertips uh, out there in the world today, and and I've tried to take data coming from them and and replay it on our devices, and basically, yeah, doesn't work that well. So we we clearly haven't figured it out. And I was just going to add that I think, you know, a lot of this discussion so far has been mostly about cutaneous feedback, but I think thinking about, you know, kinesthetic feedback, maybe in more surgical robotic applications, um, more than thinking about haptic illusions, I think about sort of this, how can we use both visual information combined with some of this kinesthetic force feedback to give the sense of, you know, that you are touching certain parts of the body, certain tissues. And as Darren was saying, it doesn't necessarily need to be perfectly realistic, you're sort of combining these different senses to get the, you know, the information that you need, even if it's not sort of perfect in that sense. So again, not really thinking about illusions, but sort of this, you know, sensory and perception. Right. If the effect is, gives you the perfect outcome, um, then it doesn't matter how realistic it is while not being, not formally being an illusion. Um, it, it just means something else uh, once it's perceived. So if I could if I could follow on this and, and I saw that a lot of there's a lot of focus on understanding um, basically uh, surface energy and and how people touch the world. But from this conversation, it's clear that we don't have from a scientific perspective a complete understanding of how humans touch. For example, several of you have already brought up this idea of like, well, we mostly touch rigid things or things are bilateral, so we, we tend to impart uh, very little energy or the things that we touch impart very little energy. So I guess my, my question is, is this the gap? Is this the scientific knowledge gap that we don't know in totality what percentage of things do humans touch that is hard or soft? How much energy do we put into the world? How much energy does the world put into us? Are these just like, is this the, the dark matter of haptics? And forgive my son, but he wants to join in as well. Yeah, so if, if I can jump in, I, I really believe that there's a lot to understand about the fundamental aspects of touch, because I think at the end of the day, it's a, it's a difficult mechanics problem. So we don't feel material properties. We don't feel surface energy. We don't feel elasticity. We don't feel any of that. What we do feel are mechanical deformations on the finger. Um, so like some of the things we've shown is like we can take objects with a high Young's modulus and have people tell us that they're softer. Um, and we can routinely do this. Um, and there's lots of examples of this. And it really comes down to the, uh, the way your finger works is to feel mechanical forces. So I, I, when, when you're rubbing your finger across the surface, it's generating a very complex pattern of friction. Um, and I think that's one of those like societal goals to understand friction um, because it's a very complex issue. I don't know if like one subset of one discipline will be able to address it. Um, but I think the ways kind of we can get around it is how can we kind of predict human behavior? Like how much, how much is enough for us to get where we want to go? Um, so I think, 
I, I do think we do need new tools. We need new analysis methods. We need new materials to probe how touch works. And then once we know how touch works, we'll need other materials that can control those sensations on demand. Um, so I, I do think there's a lot of opportunity, at, at least for fine touch. So I'm only really talking about this one aspect of fine touch. Um, but if we want to really have a handle on it, I think we do need to build kind of this library of understanding around the problem, um, in my opinion at least, and I'd, I'd definitely be interested to hear what other people have to say on the matter. Yeah, do you, what, do you, what do you think for kinesthetic impedance? Is it as, is it as big a gap? So I would say that since I focus on surface, uh, <laughs> surface science and more of interfacial mechanics, I would say that kinesthetic is um, outside. I, I, I think the power requirements are very high for that. I think those are very different challenges um so and i i, I think uh, maybe other people could answer that those particular questions better um, but at least for fine touch um, there's definitely challenges and just the basics of which forces are important yeah i mean uh, so i i have done uh, you know some research in trying to understand how humans uh, you know achieve the control of interaction and, and there, there are ongoing, uh, you know, there are ongoing uh, questions. Uh, if you even think about, uh, you know, the muscle models uh, that we use, we, you know, we control uh, interaction with the environment relying on the intrinsic uh, dynamic properties of muscles, uh, that if you contract your muscle, like uh, Laura was describing her uh, muscle that she's developed, you increase the number of cross bridges and muscle stiffen, right? And uh, uh, this, this increase in stiffness with activation is a fundamental property of human muscles that we know has a stabilizing property, a stabilizing effect in the interaction with the environment. Uh, but if you look at the muscle models that are included in uh, biomechanics simulation, um, that feature of muscle behavior is pretty complicated to include in a model. There are models from the 80s and uh, developed computational models but to include those models into a multi-body simulation has been considered uh, computationally taxing. And so muscle models that are included in those simulations do not even include the uh, stiffening behavior of muscles uh, during interaction. So th there is ongoing research to improve this computationally and allow the science of interaction control. But yes, this is an ongoing uh, area of research in, in the field as well. Hey, uh, great discussion. Um, question from Professor O'Malley to Ed. Given your thoughts on our need to better understand touch the way we understand vision, where should we focus our efforts? Active versus passive touch, different types of cutaneous sensations. Hi, hi Marcy. Uh, thank you for, <laughs> for that hard question. Um, thankfully, we've got a whole field and so we can distribute our, <laughs> thanks, <laughs> we can distribute our efforts a bit. Um, so when I, when I, to be honest, when I was talking about that sort of understanding touch the way we understand vision, I was thinking in terms of cutaneous sensation. Um, you know, I, again, I've, I've spent a fair amount 